Warriors group, and they meet in person every Sunday at 8 a.m. in this room back over here where the door is behind the, the stage back here. And if you want to come join and pray for our services and for everyone that will come in these doors every Sunday morning, you can join that group. Everyone is welcome. Kids are welcome. So that's our Prayer Warriors uh, ministry here at Pine Tree, and I encourage you to get involved if you're not already. So our sermon series this month, the title of the sermon series comes from Luke chapter 11, verse 1, and I've read it each week. Jesus is off praying, and when he finishes praying, his disciples come up to him and they say, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples to pray. Their request is, teach us to pray. They see that Jesus has been praying, They see how important prayer is to Jesus, his life, his ministry, and they know how to pray. They prayed before, but they want to know how to pray the way that Jesus prays. And so we've looked at the Lord's Prayer, Luke 11, 2 through 4, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus gives them a prayer. He gives them words that they can say in a prayer. Last week, we looked at Luke eleven five 5 through 13, where Jesus continues to elaborate on prayer and what it's all about. And our need to be persistent in prayer, which was very unlike what other rabbis were teaching, but also that God is good and he desires to give us his Holy Spirit. So that's what we've looked at this far. Um, How many of you have been on an elevator? And when you get on the elevator, you want the doors to close, so what do you do? You press the closed door button. Who's pressed the closed door button on an elevator before? Who has pressed the closed door button on an elevator repeatedly? Yeah, that's usually me. When I get on an elevator, nobody's waiting. I'm pressing the closed door button over and over. Well, an article I read a few weeks ago, and I don't know how true this is, but it sounds true, that most of the elevators that were built and installed after the early 90s put a closed door button that didn't go to anything, that didn't actually work. And if that's true, you can get on an elevator and watch people compulsively press that button over and over, knowing that it's not actually going to make a difference. But the elevator is designed on a timer for the doors to eventually close either way. So when people are pressing the closed door button, and then the doors eventually do close, even if you pressed it five or six times, when the doors close, it reinforces your belief in that button. So some people call it the dummy button. You press it, and then finally when it closes, then you think, okay, I did that. I closed it by pressing this button. But someone raised the question, is that what prayer is like? Is prayer like pressing a dummy button on an elevator? Is prayer just throwing up words up into the air Hoping that there's a God listening, and then when something happens, when life happens, we just say, okay, that was an answer to a prayer. Is that what prayer is? Is that all prayer is? Well, for myself as a follower of Jesus, and for most of you in this room, I know maybe not everybody, but most of us would probably consider ourselves disciples of Jesus. We know that prayer is an important part of our lives, and we believe that when we pray, the creator of the universe... Yahweh, that he cares intimately for each one of us, and he is listening to our prayers, he is listening to us as a church. It's kind of an overwhelming thought, but because of our faith, we believe, and we're taught to believe that when we pray, something happens, that God is listening, and God knows what's best for us, and God is going to provide 
for us. But what I've mentioned in this sermon series is the prayer, the type of prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples is the type of prayer that bends our wants towards what God wants. That prayer is less about treating God like he is some ATM machine or a genie in a bottle where we're just trying to take from him or throw out our requests and hopefully he'll give us what we want. But prayer is more about us getting aligned with what God wants. Prayer is not about magic. Jesus doesn't say, here's the formula. If you pray this, this many times, then you'll get what you want. Prayer is about formation. That's what prayer was for Jesus. It was about formation. It was about God's kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It was about Jesus fulfilling God's will for him. It was about him being formed closer and closer to the heart of God and prayer for us, if we're to imitate Jesus, is about us being formed closer and closer to the heart of God. So we've looked at a lot of Luke chapter 11, and today we're moving into Luke chapter 18. Something amazing happens in Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells two parables right away, and something that very rarely happens is he tells us the purpose for the parable before he tells the parable. At least, at least Luke gives us the commentary. This is why he tells the parable. All right, so in verse 1, for example, Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. Some of your versions may say, always pray and never give up. Now, before we read this parable and dive into this, I want to remind you of a few things that's very important to keep in mind when you study a text and when you interpret the Bible, and we all interpret the Bible and what it means, one of those is the literary context. Remember, when Luke wrote this, when the New Testament writers wrote their letters or their gospel stories, they didn't write chapter 1, chapter 2, he didn't write chapter 17, chapter 18. It was one big story, and it was meant to be read all at one time. And so when we see chapter 17, usually we kind of separate the next thought in our mind. But chapter 18, verse 1, begins with, then Jesus told them a parable. So if we keep in mind the context, then we would have to look at chapter 17. And I'm not going to read all that, but I'll give you a glimpse of what it says. Jesus is preaching about this kingdom of God that's coming. So in chapter 17, towards the end, he's questioned about what the kingdom is, where it will come, when will we see it, and he tells them the kingdom of God is within you. So he's talking about the kingdom of God in the present tense, but then he switches to the future tense, and he's talking about a day when Jesus will return and will see the kingdom in its fullest way. So he warns them, it's going to be like the days of Lot or the days of Noah, and people will be caught off guard. So the kingdom is here, it is now, but it's not fully here yet. And someday Jesus is coming back. And so he tells them this parable, but it's also important to keep in mind the original audience, the historical context. Who is Luke writing to originally? The original recipients of this letter would have been in the first century, the early church, and they're anticipating every day that Jesus is going to come back like he promised. I mean, how often do we live with that kind of anticipation? We don't wake up each day thinking, oh, this could be the day that Jesus comes back. But that's how they lived. They believed that Jesus could come back at any moment, but at the same time, 
as early Christians, they were starting to face persecution. So the pressure was being put on them. Property was starting to be taken away. Christianity was becoming illegal. So they were paying a heavy price for their faith. So they're waiting on Jesus to return, but there seems to be a delay in his return. And now they're facing these persecutions. So Jesus tells them that they should always pray and not lose heart. Always pray and not give up. He seems to be alluding to the coming persecutions. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith on earth? So when he returns, will he find that people are still faithful, people are still praying? So if you combine the purposes there in the literary context and what's going on in the original audience, it seems like what Jesus is saying is prayer is faith and faith is prayer. So when Jesus comes back, will he find that we are still a praying people? Or when Jesus comes back, will he find that we have given up on prayer? And if we've given up on prayer, that probably means we've given up on our faith. So there's a little bit of the background. Now let's read this parable, starting in verse 2. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So sometimes when we read parables, you know, we don't always know what they're about. And so we kind of read into it, maybe our presuppositions and what we think the parable is about. But thankfully, Luke tells us this parable is about prayer, but then he gives us two characters in a courtroom setting. So when we think of a court, you know, we think of a a big building and a judge and a jury and all this stuff, but in the first century, you could probably picture in your mind something more like a big tent with people everywhere. And according to N.T. Wright, if someone murdered someone in your family or someone stole something from you, you couldn't just go to the police and get them to handle it for you you had to wait your turn to go see the judge. So the judge would have had assistants, and those assistants would probably take bribes, and if you bribe them with enough money, they would move your case up to the front of the list. So we had this courtroom setting, and then we had this widow. Most scholars would tell you a widow in the ancient world represented helplessness and exploitation. People took advantages of widows. Their husbands were gone. They probably did not have much on the finances. And if their kids weren't around to help them, then they were kind of helpless. So here's this widow who probably does not have money for a bribe. But all she has is her persistence. Or I like to say she's a tenacious widow. She just keeps coming back. And her one request when she stands outside this tent is just one sentence. Grant me justice against my opponent. Grant me justice against my opponent. Grant me justice against my opponent. 
H.B. Charles tells a story about a woman who came to church every Sunday. She sat in the same spot every Sunday, and then she could be heard, and those sitting around her saying the same prayer every Sunday. She would say, oh Lord, thank you Jesus, throughout the church service. Oh Lord, thank you Jesus. Oh Lord, thank you Jesus. And so some of the kids would giggle. People would mimic her when they would walk down the hallways. Oh Lord, thank you Jesus. And then finally one guy He got to know her well enough that he could felt comfortable asking her, why do you say that every Sunday? Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And she said, I just combine the only two prayers that I know. She said, I live in a rough neighborhood, and a lot of nights you can hear gunshots. And sometimes there's drive-by shootings. So she said, I get my daughter, we hide in the house, and I pray throughout the night, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. She said, when I wake up in the morning... And I see that we're still alive and my daughter's okay. I say, thank you, Jesus. So then I get my daughter ready for school. I take her to the bus stop, and I don't know what's going to happen to her throughout the day. So I just say, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. And then at 3 p.m. when the bus returns home and I see that she's safe and okay, I say, thank you, Jesus. So she says, when I come to church and I'm worshiping, all I can think to pray is, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Just a one-sentence prayer. And that's what this widow offers in Luke 18. Grant me justice against my opponent. Grant me justice against my opponent. And then we have this judge. So the judge comes up and he doesn't care about people. He doesn't fear God. You know, these extreme examples, these details that Jesus gives us, he seems like a horrible person. But he cares about his job because he wants to make money. He's a person of power. And then we're told in verse 4, the end of verse 4, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by her continually coming. The, The judge is going to grant her justice so that she won't wear him out. In the Greek, that literally means so that she won't blacken my eye. So he's saying, I don't want her to give me a black eye, and then people not respect me as a judge, and then me lose some of my power, so I'm going to give her justice so she'll go away and leave me alone. That's basically what he's saying. So those are kind of the characters and some of the elements of this story, but one of the questions I had last week when we looked at Luke chapter 11 is, what does this teach us about prayer and about God? So we're told after he tells this parable in in verse 6, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? So the argument is the same. In Luke 11, there's a friend who comes at midnight to his neighbor, and he's banging on the door needing bread. And he will give his neighbor bread because of his persistence, so he'll go away. In Luke 11, there's a dad who knows how to give good gifts to his children. And both times, Jesus uses an argument that rabbis would have used at his time. And it's, if A is true, how much more is B true? It's the argument from the lesser to the greater. If this unjust judge, who doesn't even care about people, will grant justice to this widow, how much more... Will a good and loving God grant justice to those who cry out to him? You know, in our family van, my son Christian is two and a half years old. 
And so for the first two and a half years of his life, his car seat was rear-facing. If you're a parent, you know what that means. If you don't have kids yet, you're thinking, what in the world is that? He was facing backwards. So he couldn't see what was going on. But recently, he's now of the age or weight or whatever that is where we could turn him around. So now Christian is forward-facing, which means something to me because that means he can see everything that I'm doing. Every time we're in the car now, if it's a short trip or a long trip, this is what I hear. Dad, 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 dad. And then finally, I'll, he'll break me down. I'll say, what, Christian? You know, I'm up here trying to have a conversation. I'm trying to concentrate and drive. And then usually, once he gets my attention, it's something silly, like he'll just say hi or show me the toy that he's playing with. He's just excited that he can finally see me. But to get my attention, he just says my name over and over. It's like he knows he's going to break me down. And even if I've tuned him out, he's going to get my attention one way or another. So is that what prayer is like? Like this widow? Do we just keep coming before God with the same prayer and hopefully we'll break down his will and he will give us what we want? God is much better than that. God is not like this judge. God doesn't have to be pestered to answer our prayers. God is always listening to our prayers. And whatever this justice is, and you keep in mind that church that was facing persecution, the question is reversed around, and Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So you connect verse 1 and verse 8. And what God is looking for from us is that we continue to pray, we don't give up, and we remain faithful. And we don't always know how he'll answer our prayers. There's a bit of mystery to this parable that we don't fully understand, but we gain little tidbits that we can learn about prayer. But Jesus isn't done teaching on prayer. He moves on to another parable in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. And for this parable, we're also told right from the get-go what the parable is about, what the purpose of the parable is. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. So if you're reading from an NIV, for those who are self-righteous and look down on others. This is why he's telling the parable, but the parable is about prayer. In verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the, the story that Jesus is using here is in Jerusalem, this would have been an everyday scene. The time for corporate prayers was 9 in the morning and then 3 p.m. So at those times, and you could pray throughout the day, but at those times you're going to have a wide variety of people showing up at the temple to pray. You might have some religious leaders like this Pharisee, then you might also have someone like a tax collector. So you have all these people showing up to pray, and he says in verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all my income. Okay, so this is kind of an exaggerated example. Who in the world prays like that? If you're thinking that's what my prayer sounds like, well, if you hear anything today, your prayer life needs to change if that's what your prayer sounds like. So we have this Pharisee, and the type of prayer that he offers is a self-congratulatory prayer. Look at how good I am. I fast, I give a tenth of everything, and I'm not like these other people. 
especially this tax collector that I see over there praying. So that's one of the characters. And then the other character is this tax collector, and we get his prayer. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven. But he was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So I don't know what exactly this looked like. You know, he has a certain prayer posture. You know, if you ever think about your body and your physical movements when you pray, some, some people, when you think prayer, they think of getting down on your knees. Sometimes when you think prayer, you may think holding your hands together. We teach our children to bow their heads. I'll admit, when I'm at home, I like to, especially when no one's around, I kind of pace around the room when I'm praying. We all have different uh, bodily movements when we pray, but this tax collector is beating his chest And he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's humble. You know, the the Pharisee is prideful. The tax collector is humble because he comes before God knowing the type of person he is. And he's not trying to hide it. And he's just asking for forgiveness. Because he knows he can't receive forgiveness on his own. Only God can grant that. And then Jesus tells us in verse 14... This man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. So we have two parables, and in both parables, the good example of prayer is just one sentence. It's just a short one sentence. The widow says, grant me justice against my opponent. The tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So as church history developed, different spiritual formation practices developed, and from these two parables and other examples like it, we get what's called a breath prayer. A breath prayer is a simple one-sentence prayer like we see from this widow or from this tax collector. And what it's designed to do is be linked to your breathing. You breathe in, kind of like the tax collector, and you address God in the name of God, and then as you breathe out, you breathe out your request, a one-sentence prayer. Throughout the day, we breathe oxygen, and we don't even think about that, but we have to breathe oxygen to live. So breath prayer kind of reminds us that God is the oxygen to our soul. And just like the Apostle Paul kind of teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. It's like a way to keep praying throughout the day and breathing God in throughout your daily life. Uh, This is a combination of Luke 18, the tax collector's prayer, and at the end of Luke chapter 18, there's sort of another prayer. It's this blind man in Luke 18. Jesus was approaching Jericho in verse 35. He was sitting by the roadside. There's a blind man sitting by the roadside begging When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Then he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front of him sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he shouted even more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and ordered the man be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Immediately he regained his sight and people followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, praised God. So we have this 
This man who's on the road and he can't see, hears that Jesus is coming. So he just cries out another one-sentence plea or one-sentence prayer. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So in church history, this breath prayer becomes known as the Jesus prayer. And it's a combination of the tax collector's prayer and the blind man's prayer from Luke chapter 18. Jesus, son of David, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's a one-sentence prayer that you can pray taken straight from Scripture. I was telling a friend who grew up like I did in the churches of Christ, I was telling him about this sermon recently. And I told him, I said, have you ever heard of breath prayer? Do you know what that's all about? And he says, no, but it sounds like some hippie thing. That sounds really weird. And he said, why can't we just pray like we normally pray and just go through the list and, and pray? And I said, man, if you're that strong and you're that confident in your faith, there actually is a prayer that you can pray, and it comes from Luke 18. It's called the Pharisee's Prayer. He was very confident in his own prayer, and if you're like the Pharisee, and you're that confident in your own prayer, then try that one. But for the rest of us, we're still learning to pray. Just like the disciples who had grown up praying come to Jesus in Luke 11, 1, and they say, teach us to pray. Because if we're following Jesus... We want to be like him, and we want to pray like him. A man named Greg Boyd has his own one-sentence prayer that he prays throughout the day in the busyness of his schedule when he doesn't always have time to slip away for 20 or 30 minutes to pray. And his one-sentence prayer is taken from Paul, from Philippians 1.21 and some of the other statements that Paul makes. And he prays throughout the day, my life is Christ and nothing else matters. It's more of a reminder than it is a prayer. It's more of a reminder than it is a request. My life is Christ and nothing else matters. That reminds him of what's most important. It reminds him how he needs to treat people and respond to people. And one day uh, there was a man who was riding behind him on the road and had some road rage and was riding his bumper and trying to cut him off the road. So he pulls into a gas station and walks into the convenience store to cool down And this man with the road rage follows him into the gas station, yells at him, charges him physically, and grabs him by the shirt and is getting ready to hit him. And he said, I had a few options. I could start swinging back. I could just try to duck and run. And he said, all I could think to do was say that one sentence prayer. So he said, my life is Christ and nothing else matters. My life is Christ and nothing else matters. And he said, the guy didn't hit me. In fact, he let me go. And he said, I had one of the most interesting conversations in my life that day in the convenience store. But that guy met Jesus that day. Instead of fighting, this one-sentence prayer served as a reminder to Greg Boyd on what's most important. Here's how you respond. And it's an opportunity for him to share who Jesus is. So I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon series that there's been times in my life where Man, I I don't have the words to pray. I know Paul in Romans chapter 8 says that sometimes the Spirit intercedes for us. But maybe you're like me and you've been in places where you're just thinking, I know I need to pray. I know I need God and God's presence, but I just don't have the words right now. And so occasionally, I'll just recite the Lord's Prayer. The words that Jesus taught us to pray. But there are times throughout the day... Well, we don't have 10, 15, 20 minutes to slip away and go pray. 
So there's other opportunities to say prayers to keep you reminded of who you are and that God is with you. And that's where that breath prayer comes in. That's where the one sentence prayer comes in. So if you're a teacher and you're getting ready to go back to school, sorry if that depresses you, but it's coming either way. And you know that students are going to be in your classroom. And for seven hours every day, you're busy and you can't just slip away for 20 or 30 minutes and go pray. I'm imagining that these public schools, they don't give you a prayer closet for you to go pray in. So what do you do? Well, maybe you could develop a one-sentence prayer that you could pray throughout the day until you get home and you have more time to sit and pray. Or in the morning when you have more time to sit and pray. For those who are in the medical field and you're working and you're seeing patients all day, or maybe you work in a hospital and you really know how busy life can be, especially when you're on the job, but you just you need God to help calm you down, maybe you could say one of these one-sentence prayers. You know, I'm thinking about my own wife and for moms who are at home with your kids, and it's loud and it's chaotic, and you're just trying to keep them from fighting each other, and, but you don't have the luxury of going off by yourself to pray. Maybe you could pray a one-sentence prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray, and he gives us different ways that we can pray. And one of the ways that we want to imitate Jesus is that throughout every day, we're relying on God. Whether it's a one-sentence prayer, it's the Lord's Prayer, or where we're crying out to God, whatever is on our heart, we keep coming before God to pray always and to not lose heart. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And you look at the tax collector's prayer, and you look at the blind man's prayer, Jesus, Son of David, be merciful to me, a sinner. You combine those two together And one of the great hopes that we have in life is that when we pray, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner, because of the cross, we know that he has been merciful to us. And that when we come to Christ, and when we're baptized into Christ, we receive that mercy. So this morning, we're going to sing a few more songs, and as usual, you can find a shepherd and pray. You can come up here. We just want you to know that this is a safe place for you, and we want to challenge you to be a people of prayer. Let's stand and continue to sing.